I love it when the children's leaders are on top of everything. See, I have a seven-year-old. A seven-year-old is the youngest, and probably I should have done the same thing for my seven-year-old, but now I just, I expect my seven-year-old to not play with hammers, not play with nails, not do stupid stuff. I don't know why I have such a high expectation of my seven-year-old, but today I put nails and I put hammers at the foot of the cross for the kids' blessings. The head of our children's program was like, probably should remove this before we end up having a real live crucifixion taking place. We do not need nails through the hands of our three-year-olds. How was everybody's Pesach? How was everybody's Passover? Good? Good? Awesome. It seems that every year... My family does things a little bit differently, and this year, basically, you know, we're, we're always, we've always been, since 2007, we've always been, you know, Christ in the Seder, Christ in the Passover. But this year, it was basically like Passover in the Christ. Like, Christ was first, Passover was second. And it was really beautiful, you know, we got a chance to do it with Shepherd. By the way, I, I was informed this week, Shepard, um, congratulations. I did not realize that Shepard is now the boss of HFF. I was informed by Shepard after Passover that uh, he's the boss. Is that right, Shepard? Shepard. Hey, you are Shepard. Yeah, yeah. You. Are you the boss of HFF? Yes, okay, good. How long do I have today? Asking Okay. What time do I need to be done? Whenever you're ready? Okay, you just, you just give me the... So we had the Wallaces over. Cam was, was out of town this week for work. So we had the Wallaces over in. It was a very short Seder. You know, a traditional Jewish Seder lasts pretty much seven hours too long. And even then... You know, a messianic Seder, a little, this corner of Christianity. Yeah, two, three hours pretty, pretty easily. And that sometimes will include the meal or without the meal. But this week, we had a 40-minute pre-dinner Seder. We had about a 20-minute post-meal Seder. And then we watched Passion of the Christ. And I can tell you this. I have yet to get through the Passion of the Christ without crying. I was able to do it without like snot, slobbery crying this time. I was able to be very stoic while I sat there in the room with guests and just the little, like, you know, it's like, I'm not crying, you're crying. I'm not crying, you're crying. But like, you can't hide the tear that likes just like down the, the cheek and like. And today I thought about showing some of that as a part of the message, but then I realized that it was youth class and not kids class, and so I realized that uh, family being our middle name, I didn't want everybody in the congregation to give me their MBF, their mean Bible face. (laughs) Guys, today we have, where did Isabel go? Did I lose Isabel? Yeah, she's in youth class. Did I lose all my tech team? Guys, the rapture has happened, and we have all been left behind. (sighs) Ephraim, 
You've got like 20 years experience on graphics. Can you uh, go ahead and put the Pharaoh in us graphic up for me? Man, the Lord has a sense of humor. He takes the least qualified with their opening and he forces them to adjust. Thank you, thank you. Today, we sit in between Passover and we sit in between first fruits. It's a time where God has commanded us to tell the ancient story, the story about the deliverance from Egypt. But for each and every one of us, it's a season by which we also know that God has already sent his son to deliver us from sin and death. I personally believe that this is the greater exodus that's talked about in the scripture, that no longer are we left to our own devices But the moment that Jesus said, it is finished, and the moment that he resurrected from that grave, that we had the potential, and I say potential, to leave our sinful nature and be redeemed back to God, not by anything we do, but by being washed in the blood of the spotless lamb. Just like we wrestle with our own gods in this world, The gods of the Egyptians who were carved into the doorposts were covered by a physical lamb without spot and blemish. And while we see gods of this world, while we interact with gods of this world a little bit differently, whether it be television, the radio, driving on 35, literally north, south, whatever, the billboards have gotten crazy, The gods of this world can be covered every day by the blood of Yeshua, the spotless lamb. Because ultimately, we have the same choice that we faced in the Garden of Eden. And that was two choices. To love, seek after, and obey the gods of this world, the gods of our flesh. Or to seek after the God who created the world. Boiling it down, Looney Tunes version, angel, devil, good, bad, wrestle. It's that simple. Yet we all know the story of the garden. This week we all know the story of the Exodus. Ultimately, God always wins. It's, you don't have to sit through three and a half hours worth of bad story plots to ultimately let you know that Batman's going to win or that Superman's going to win. Ultimately, God gets right to the point. But this choice of humanity has spiraled humanity's fleshly issues out of control over and over and over again. In the times of Noah, in the times of David, Joseph's own brothers sold him to slavery. And some of you in this room, your own parents, your own siblings have sold you to slavery. They've left you for dead. Spoiler alert. God will always find you. God will always protect you. God will always redeem you. You just have to look to the right father, the right king, the right God. Because everything around us is a God. But there's only one real God. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for this day. We thank you for the commandment to retell the story. We thank you for the commandment 
to remember this season through Jesus. Lord, today as we look at the story of the Exodus, as we look at the story of good versus evil, we praise you. That even when we haven't understood and even when we haven't walked in manners by which you've called us to do, you have always delivered. So today, Lord, we give you all the honor, all the praise in this place. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. It's the Passover season. It's a time that we remember the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the slavery of the Hebrews. And unfortunately, a lot of times, we remember it as something that happened then. You know, one of the things I love about doing Passover seders over the last couple of years with Ephraim and with Brent is that they always approach the stories and the time with honesty of what might be today. It's not just an ancient story. It's not just something that happened. It's not a history class. It's a class that reminds us what happened in the past also happens in our present. And if we're not careful, careful, it will be our future. See, the story of the Passover tells us of, of an office. An office. It wasn't the president of the United States, but it was similar. It also started with a P in the English language. The Pharaoh's office. A lot of times we, we think of Pharaoh as a singular person. I know when we do our Passover seders with our children, a lot of times like the Pharaoh. And yes, that theoretically is correct. At that point in time, there was a Pharaoh. But the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's office is very similar to the president of the United States of America. Now, how far down that line you want to draw your own conclusions that's completely up to you. But let's just say at a 50,000-foot level, there's a system. The system exists as a cultural structure, and sooner or later, somebody sits at the top of that structure. Be it the president, be it the prime minister, or in Egypt, the office of the pharaoh. Hmm. Throughout time, there's been many pharaohs, just like throughout time, there's been many presidents. Now, I won't sit here and say that all presidents have been good, and I won't say that all pharaohs have been good, because ultimately, if we look at the history of the office of the pharaoh, it was an office in a position that brought about a very anti-Christ type of a culture. I was actually talking with Stephen Drews yesterday of how amazing it is when we look at the feast cycle and we look at the calendar of the Lord, that every 50 years he has this like turn to reestablish everything. So if you lost everything, if you had to file bankruptcy, if you lost your house, if you sold all your horses and your sheep and your donkeys, i.e. your Pokemon cards or your baseball cards or whatever it is modern day, I, Everybody's like, we're only allowed three chickens inside the city limits of Norman. I can't own a donkey. So I'm trying to make it a little bit relevant for you today. In 350 years, everything is reestablished. 
So you could double down on your hand of poker and really stink at Texas Hold'em, and God reestablishes a baseline for you in the 50 years. How many of you have been in spots throughout your life where you really could have used that kind of like, hey, I could use a jubilee year. Hey, I could use it when everything was kind of set back right. Hey, I could use it when they just go ahead and wipe off that bad mistake I made on my credit. Nobody in this room, right? We've all made perfect decisions. But the system of our world doesn't exist that way. It doesn't exist that way. Things that have happened to you don't recalibrate. If you lost your house, it's not like you get your house back after 50 years. Even if you had to file bankruptcy, it's not like at the end of the bankruptcy, after a period of time, the bank's like, giving you your house back, let's try this again. Don't make the same mistakes this time. No, they sold your house to some conglomerate who's turned around and sold it to somebody else and made it a large profit. Meanwhile, you'll struggle with the decisions and the mistakes you made for many, many years. Well, this is an extension of a political environment who was run by the office of the Pharaoh. Now, it's even worse. And again, whatever level you want to go into the comparisons of the presidents and the pharaohs, that's your place to do it. But today, I want to stay at 50,000 foot. Egyptian politics, Egyptian rule. They had slaves. We won't get into ancient American slavery, but right now I can tell you that there's multiple, multiple ethnicities in this room, and they are not enslaved by whips and chains, physical violence, any of those things. But yet this is the basis for the Hebrews inside Egypt. And if it hadn't been the Hebrews, most likely it would have been some smaller culture that was there because ultimately the political system and the geopolitical system of Egypt was built off the backs of other people. Let me obtain more and let me use you to do that. Pharaoh could have been a con man. He could have done a lot of other things, but no, he was an abuser who architected a cultural system that used other human beings who were supposed to have value to build big old beautiful things like that. Some people think it was angels and Nephilim and gods and all those types of things. Aliens. Aliens. But the entire system, the what was the United States of America at that time, was built off the backs of people who had no choice in the matter. They didn't get to choose to be blue collar. They didn't get to choose to go and be a part of the system. They were slaves. The Pharaoh did not care about those people. One of the things I find very interesting when you watch some of the historical movies Passion of the Christ, that kind of stuff. There's a scene in the Passion of the Christ, and this isn't Egypt, and I know I'm jumping through my cultures, but hey, it is what it is today, where Herod comes in, 
Jesus is kicked over to Herod, and he comes in, and the pastor of the Christ, he's like pulling his wig on, and I'm guessing his boy toys are behind him, and he's all in. He's got the eyeliner, and he's, they're living a life of luxury. Every sin, every evil, everything they want, and yet standing here as a man shackled, semi-beaten, the king of the Jews I would have to believe, looking at history, the Pharaoh was even more powerful. The Pharaoh would be more like a Caesar than a Herod. The Pharaoh was a god to the people at that time. A god who had influence over the god of the water, the god of the sky, the god of the sea, the god of all these things. The human god. And yet, the real God heard the cries of the slaves who were his people. The people who, in the garden, he had promised, you will be co-heirs with me. Slaves to royalty. God is a God who likes to flip the script on what is considered to be normal in this world. He also, I believe, has a really big sense of humor. Because you've got Pharaoh, I'm guessing through makeup and through orange glow tanner, like this guy was probably muscular, this gal was muscular, whatever. Good looking, the king, the ruler of all gods of the world. And here comes Moses says he wasn't the greatest of orator. He didn't walk in with a Herculean type of look. It wasn't Ryan White walking through the door for a David Wilbur. No, probably the opposite. It would be like a David and Goliath. Oh, wait. Oh, huh. a Joseph. Oh, wait, God likes underdogs. Why? Because it proves just how powerful he is, that he can do anything. God sends Moses into one of the craziest places ever. Because, see, the Pharaoh wasn't just the Pharaoh. A lot of times we talk about this being like a one-person thing. So this wasn't like Isaac and I shared a difference of opinion, and I was coming to debate him to win the debate. No, Isaac ruled over the largest, wealthiest, most influential system and structure ever. So whatever decision he made, it wasn't just like he was going to trade me his truck for $10,000. This had ramifications that were immeasurable. And yet, Moses was sent to Pharaoh with an opportunity to hear the Lord's proposal. In Exodus 3... We see that even as God is commissioning Moses, God knows that Pharaoh will resist the demands to change his way. So why didn't God throw in the towel? God's all-knowing. 
God's all-powerful. Part of Christianity, we have, we have the people who believe, well, we don't really have free will. God, since he knows everything, he does everything. And we've got the other people who says, no, God knows everything, but he, he still allows you to have his free will. And we have all the measures in between. But in Exodus 3, it says, God already knows that the Pharaoh will resist the commands. So why send Moses? Why not just Thanos the moment and be over? When you start digging into the text of the scripture and when you start looking and you start asking questions and you start to be revealed the nature of God, there's so much beauty in just how awesome God is. Because God knew that Pharaoh would resist. Exodus 3 says this, and yet God still sends Moses. In Exodus 4, it says God says because of this, he knows that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Because Pharaoh will resist, God will harden his heart. Guys, in this room, I'm blessed and highly favored. How was your week? It was a blessing. God knows whether that's true or false. Oh man, I had, I've, been, I've been loving the 28 days of prayer and fasting and God knows whether you did it or not. I'm not your judge. God is a good thing too because he is way more powerful than I am. God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. God knows the status of your heart. But yet God didn't immediately harden the heart of Pharaoh. Every year in my family, we like to dip our finger into the grape juice and talk about the plagues. In the first plague, Exodus 7.22, it says Pharaoh's heart became hard. It doesn't say that God did this. It doesn't say that immediately God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Second plague, frogs. If you watch the Prince of Egypt, they do a really good job of showing the most historically accurate version in a cartoon I've ever seen. It says, Exodus 8, 15, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But yet, Exodus 4 says that because Pharaoh will resist God, he will harden his heart. But so far, we're two for two. So far, it doesn't say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. Three gnats. In Exodus 8, 19, it says Pharaoh's heart was hard. Four. We're almost halfway there, church. Flies. This is also a plague that still exists today in Oklahoma. Whew, we're getting ready to fly season. In Exodus 8.32, it says, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Ooh. Okay. Five, livestock die. This also happens in Oklahoma. Not on this scale, but on a regular basis. In Exodus 9.7, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. We're halfway home, church. Five out of ten. Six boils. In Exodus 9.12, it says, the Lord Harden Pharaoh's heart. See, in plagues 1, 3, and 5, the text is ambiguous. 
It doesn't say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but it also does not say that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart like it says in number six. But on the sixth plague, it tells us that it was God who hardened the Pharaoh's heart. God gave Pharaoh five opportunities to humble up, to receive the works of God, and adjust. How many of you already knew that? How many of this, hey, I remember this, I looked at this, I already knew it. Hey, awesome, fantastic. A lot of times, people go into the story of Passover and they talk about Exodus 3 and they talk about Exodus 4 and they gloss over the fact that, oh, Pharaoh resisted, so God hardened his heart. The text just showed us there that it wasn't until the sixth plague that God started to get involved with the nature of Pharaoh's heart. So the first five, huh, full circle, first five, the first, we used to do the first five here. The first five, Pharaoh actively was involved in the status of his own heart. And it wasn't until number six that the Lord got involved. God gave Pharaoh five chances. He was consistent too. There's no flip-flopping in the first five. It wasn't like the first time where the Pharaoh, oh, the Pharaoh's heart was semi-hard. No, it says from the very first one, his heart became hard. Number two, it doesn't say he had a change of heart. No, it says he hardened his own heart. Number three, it doesn't say he was starting to think maybe the Lord was right, and so there was a crack in the hardness of his heart. It says, no, his heart was hard. Four, He's not backing down. God gave him five chances to say like, hey, we're going to get over here. And it wasn't like it was the one step forward, two steps back type of thing. No, he keeps down the same exact path. And yet the Lord was gracious to him because ultimately the Lord could have stepped in at any time he wanted and said, game over, heart of stone, you're done, we're out. I'm tired of wasting my time with you. Church, I need you to to fast forward to the 21st century. Today, we do not have dresses on men. We're not in the upper room. We're not in Egypt. We're in Norman, Oklahoma. How many times, whether it's in hindsight or it's in the moment, has God attempted to teach you something, attempted to tell you something, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that you didn't want to do what God told you? And you know without a shadow of a doubt that God was trying to get your attention. He was trying to increase your faith, and he was being gracious to you. And yet you still walk down the path 
of your own desire. See, church, a lot of times we like to talk about the triumph in the memorialization. But the truth is, is even today, while you guys kept Passover this week, while you guys studied the Bible, some of us got pharaohs in us. Where the Lord is attempting to lead us and guide us and move us and walk us through things, but our heart is becoming hardened towards what God wants from us. Because maybe, just maybe, what God is asking you to do is not what you want to do. Nobody in this room has ever been in that situation, I promise you. Just keep looking stoic because you've always answered God properly. You guys are so much holier than I am. Because nine out of ten times, if the Lord says to do something, he has to ask me ten times. It's like, Lord, I know you revealed it to me, but I need you to reveal it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Lord, I'm so glad you spoke to me. He's like, I can make this. Church, half of the plagues of Egypt were invitations for Pharaoh, unmeasured grace and mercy to Pharaoh to hear and respond to the calling of God. Your world, your system, your thought is an antichrist culture and all I want you to do is to let my people go. God was not used car salesman in this situation. It wasn't like Pharaoh doubled down and he was like, okay, we're going to change the bidding. 15,000, 14,700. No, he literally was, let my people go. Simple command. Keep your wealth. Keep whatever you're engaged in. Just let my people go. I don't even, I don't care what you do. Let my people go. And the first five of the ten times, the Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. I am so glad that God is God and I am not. Because if my kids go three times with me asking the same thing, I'm hardening their own hearts. And maybe spanking their butts. But the father of all creation gave Pharaoh five chances. Half the chances to turn around to Shuva. And to just let his people go. It wasn't a big request. You know, I sure hope nobody in this room has slaves. But I would venture to believe that if you are struggling with an addiction, if you are struggling with cooperation of evil spirits or anything else, whatever you're involved in probably is more rooted inside of yourself than it is to just let somebody go. 
You're so ingrained with whatever your Egypt is inside of you that I would think it's probably harder for us to let go of that thing than it is for us to just let our neighbors go. Let them go. I still have me, I have my car, I have my wife, I have my kids, I have my makeup, I have my pet lions and tigers and bears, oh my, I'm still the Pharaoh. And he couldn't do it. This week, it was a huge revelation going through the scripture for me to step back and look and say, no wonder we can't get out of our addiction. No wonder we can't get out of our pride. No wonder we can't get out of our cults. No wonder we can't get past our mean Bible face. No wonder we can't get rid of any of it because it's so ingrained inside of us that it's not as simple as what even the Lord asked Pharaoh. He's asking us to remove it out of our lives and make an adjustment. All he was asking Pharaoh to do is just let him walk away. When you retell the ancient story, when you look at what happened then, how many of us truly make it something that's in our life? What is he trying to deliver you from? Because the first 50%, the first five times in the story of the Exodus, God didn't harden their heart. God did not remove his spirit from the place. God showed unmeasured grace, compassion, and mercy for the Pharaoh. And when all was said and done, the angel of the Lord passed through that culture, that city. And those who didn't obey God at that point in time, there was no more unmeasured grace and mercy. It was those who obeyed God who were shown unmeasured grace and mercy. Because on the doorposts of those homes was their gods. On the doorposts of their homes was the outside sources of influence in their life. And the only way that the angel of the Lord would pass over and allow them to live is if they had obeyed the commandment to kill a spotless lamb and to put the blood on the doorposts. The blood that covered over the earthly gods. The blood that showed distinction from Israel and Egypt. Now, I would have to venture to believe that in the Hebrew culture inside of Egypt, the, the Egyptian culture had rubbed off on the Hebrews. I don't think we saw like heathenistic society and all of a sudden like angels. I'm guessing that wasn't the case. But what was the difference? The difference was the obedience to God. That's it. That's it. 
Because I would venture to believe if you're living on top of each other that there were still people who were stealing. There were still people who were, who were beating people and raping people and robbing people, probably even hurting people, hitting, punching, killing, murdering. My guess is that the Egyptian culture didn't stop at the Hebrew corridor. Now, the text doesn't explicitly tell that to us, but we know right now living in our culture that we have a tendency to dabble with the world. Pharaoh had a choice. He had many choices. And God didn't step in to execute his will until he gave Pharaoh the choices. And after Pharaoh made it abundantly clear that he was not going to adjust, that he was not going to change, that he was not going to move, God said, have it your way. And he turned him over to his own devices. And it says that the Lord hardened his heart. Now, interestingly enough, some of you, again, have probably read this. The very next one after six is seven is hail, also a plague of Oklahoma. In Exodus 9, 34, right after it said the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Lord did this. It says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So the Lord was even gracious after he poured it out. Because it says the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart after the boils. And then the very next one, it says that Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. It was even kind of like, son, I'm going to give you one more chance. And Pharaoh was like, seems to be working for me. Going to continue down this path. Again, church, none of us are like that. None of us have, have been given opportunities to walk out of, uh, out of our addictions, out of our bitterness, out of our, our trauma of our path. None of us have been given those opportunities. The Lord has not been gracious to us. The Lord has not made his face to shine upon us. And yet we still walk in disobedience from our own heart. So when we remember the time when the Lord split the sea and he led our people to Sinai where he said, you will be my people and I will be your God. And he hands a constitution we like to call the Torah. And it says, the Egyptians you have seen, you will never see again. The problem is, is the Egyptians aren't the oppressor. Our own carnal desires are the evil. Anything inside of us that is anti-God, that is anti the commandments of God, that is anti the essence of the Spirit of God is evil. It is Egyptians. It is Babylonian. It is of Satan. It is of the devil. And guess what? It is the Pharaoh that still lives in each and every single one of us. And so church... When we retell the story, we have to look at our responsibility as followers of Messiah. It's not about the regulation. It's not about, he says, if I do this in remembrance of him, I'm good. Yes, yes, that's partially true. 
But if you continue to go to the table, to the family gatherings of the Lord every single year in the feast cycle, and the feast cycle, and the feast cycle, and you're like, if you don't keep it on the 13th, then you're not saved. If you don't do it on the 14th, you're not honoring the commandments. And you keep fighting over the things that are irrelevant. You miss the fact that you have Pharaoh in your own heart. And until you realize that God came, sent his son, so that every year we could walk through the feasts and the festivals with the Lord, so that we would be set free, you're missing the entirety of the point. You're walking in regulation, and the power of God has not revealed revelation in your life. I cannot reveal it to you. Brent cannot reveal it to you. No man can reveal it to you. God has already given you the opportunity. You have to seek him. Seek first his kingdom. Guys, it's easy to build your own kingdom. It's easy to follow after the pharaohs of the world. I help write what I like to call the Messianic playbook. Easy to create playbooks to build cultures and societies. They all crumble. Why? Because there's only one king and there's only one kingdom. And in the end, he's already promised us that kingdom will come. That will will be done on this little dust of earth as it is in the throne room of God, the kingdom of heaven. Pharaoh had a heart change after the Lord hardened his heart. At sundown today, it will be the conclusion of 28 days. It'll also be the time by which the scripture says, somewhere between the sundown and the sunrise, Messiah walked out of that tomb. It'll be the conclusion of the 28 days on the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Now, why Acts? Why 28 days? Why? Well, because 40 days of Lent was too long. I'm joking. I'm joking. Maybe not. I mean, I am joking, but I don't know. Subconsciously, maybe it was the Lord. But the book of Acts is important because a lot of times we like to go through the Old Testament, the Torah, as we call it, in our little corner of Christianity, and we like to approach the spring feast with what was. And we forget that through Genesis to Revelations, there was a lot that was. Not just Sinai. And church, I got to make sure you understand this. My desire is not to take you back to Sinai. I've heard a lot of people say that. Hey, we need to go back to Sinai. Why? Sinai was a stopping point for the establishment of a people. God continued the story on from that point. But the book of Acts is important. It's extremely important for us to understand this. In the beginning was God. In the middle was God. And in the end was God. In the beginning, there was this 
part of God. It was called the Spirit. And it hovered over the chaos, the void of this earth. And through God, the Spirit, everything you see was spoke into existence. So whether you're a Trinitarian or not, because I know this corner of Christianity is on both sides, a lot of us want to keep the Word of God. And we want the flesh, the Word made flesh. But we absolutely ignore the fact that the Bible clearly tells us that it is for our benefit that the flesh would go into the dust. It would resurrect as the Spirit. It would ascend to the right hand of the Father. And it would send the Spirit back to the chaos of this world to establish order in each and every one of you. It's not a brick and stone house anymore, church. It's a flesh and bone. It's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. And all together we are the temple of god see i i need you to understand this because i've said this myself from the pulpit and it was incomplete when you start to look at the fact that god pours out his spirit and dwells in you it wasn't so that troll and you could walk around and say i'm the temple of god i look a lot better today there's a song from my son's walk-up team for his baseball. It's like, I look good today. So we're all walking around. We're like, I got the joy down in my heart. And I'm the temple of God. He's resting right here. Yeah. No, church. It's plural. We are all the temple of God. And when we work together as one, the manifestation of God's kingdom is poured out in this earth. This is why Paul says each person has a different gift. Your gift isn't the same. Your role isn't the same. Stop coveting and trying to steal and kill the spiritual gifts of other people. Walk in yours. Be empowered to walk in yours. Because God has given it to you so that we can all change this world. If not, then what we're saying is this was for nothing. This was for nothing. That from the moment he came off of this, from the moment that he resurrected, and the tomb was empty, that everything ceased. All the power, all the glory, all the might ceased. Which is ironic because the scripture clearly shows that after the ascension of God, the power of God moved throughout the world. church 28 days ago i asked you to write down on your index card and don't worry i'm sure a lot of you didn't bring index cards i'm playing with a full deck today i got index cards today I don't got a gimmick for you. 
I can't save you. I can't deliver you. And I cannot set you free. Can't do it. My job is to plant seeds. My job is to bring you the word of God and plant seeds that the Lord can use by his power to to water, to give sun, to grow. But some of you have things that have grown in your life that were not seeds that were planted by God. They're seeds that you planted when you hardened your own heart. They were planted by the pharaohs of this world. They were planted by your flesh. And if God's going to come in and water the soil of your heart, water the soil of your life, and he's going to make those seeds grow, are you going to be competing with the thorns and the thickets that are in your own life? See, there's a place for the thorns and the thickets that were on the brow of God when he hung on a tree. Symbolism like the escape goat from Yom Kippur where the sins were cast off and cast out of Israel. Symbolism like the lamb that was slain Jesus spent his entire last week, you know that week we we call Holy Week now in the Christian church. He didn't shy away from Jerusalem anymore. Jerusalem was kind of like an Egyptian headquarters. They had somebody who operated in a leadership position, a couple of them actually. They had the Jewish leadership in Caiaphas. And they also had the Roman leadership. And oddly enough, during that week, they had the heavenly leadership. And Jesus spent that week at odds with the Pharaoh-like behavior and hardened heart of those. The ones who looked to the traditions and forgot the fact that God had walked out of the building and was walking in their midst. And as the worship team comes today, I'm asking you to remember the words that God poured out in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, Jeremiah thirty one thirty three, and my favorite book in the Bible, Hebrews. 810, one of the greatest books in the Bible. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone. When you harden your heart, that heart of stone, from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. You know, when you harden your own heart when the Lord has to harden your heart from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write them on their hearts. He's no longer writing the law on tablets of stone. He's writing them on tablets of flesh. It has to be more than regulation. It has to be more than regulation. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Church, I'm going to leave these right here. I'm going to leave them off camera. It's about being on the camera. If you still have your note card from 28 days ago, awesome. If you don't, don't fool me. Don't fool God. Don't fool yourself. There's something in your heart right now that is a Pharaoh inside of you. There is something in your heart right now that is keeping you from your relationship with God. There's something that's keeping you from going exactly where God wants you to go. Every person has it. I don't know what your plans are this afternoon. I don't know how you're going to keep the rest of the Sabbath or, or what, what you got going on. But there's only a couple hours left before the tomb was empty. Please do not walk into tomorrow, into the resurrection day, the day we celebrate the first fruit offering of all creation in Jesus Christ holding on to whatever that Pharaoh is in your life, holding on to whatever that sin is or whatever it is that God asked you to be delivered from. Don't walk into tomorrow with it. Don't tarnish the gift that he gave you in everlasting life by saying, I know that you gave your life. I know you were beat to a bloody pulp. I know you did it willingly on my behalf. I know you even struggled in the garden where you asked the Lord, if it would be your will, would you take the cup of wrath from me? And no, he didn't walk away. He took the cup of wrath so that you didn't have to. So explain to me, church, why we still want to drink the cup of wrath on our own when he took it for you willingly so you didn't have to. Do not tarnish the death, the resurrection of God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Don't tarnish it. There's no gift you have ever been given that is that beautiful. The Torah foretold about him. Moses foretold about him. Joseph foretold about him. David foretold about him. Who was, who is, and who is to come. So as the worship team plays... He already took it. But if you have it, come nail it to the cross. Don't take it home. Don't put it in your glove box. Don't keep it in your Bible like I asked you to 28 days ago. Put it on the cross. Because that cross was covered by the blood of Jesus. 
just like the doorposts were covered by the blood of Jesus. Put it here and don't you dare take it with you when you go there. I don't have the power to take it from you. I don't have the power to tell you to do this, but you have the power to lay it down. You have the power to give it back and say, I can't do it, but you can. That's what the book of Acts has been telling us. Through trials, through persecutions, through everything, the helper has come so that we can walk in the same power that Jesus walked into. Don't take it home. Don't give it power any longer. Leave it at the cross.
thirst, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on his top branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he had given up his spirit. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the blood of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, he had came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as it was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. I can feel that, Peter. And he reached the tomb first, and stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths laying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as he yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their home. Worship team is going to continue to play. We're going to keep the lights down. If you're at peace with the Lord, you can go fellowship in the out in the lobby. You can leave. You can go about your day. But we're going to stay in this place for a little bit of time. For those who need time to just stay in this place. And tomorrow, we're going to gather at 8 a.m. at Lions Park. Pastor Brent going to tell you about the single greatest moment in the history of the world. The moment that seemed impossible 
when they were exiled from the garden. The moment that seemed impossible throughout all the years. The moment that God changed everything. Church, go tonight, go this afternoon in the love of Jesus. Powered by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in you. Our prayer team leads are down here in front. If you need somebody to pray with you, you can come and join them. If you just want to stay in meditation and worship right now for a while, by all means. But tomorrow changed everything historically for the past, the present, and the future. So we'll stay here however long we need to until they kick us out to make sure that you don't go into tomorrow holding on to today or yesterday. Don't go into tomorrow as if it's any other day.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to study your word, to praise you, to focus our hearts inwardly upon your spirit. Lord, as we enter into the season of first fruits and to resurrection day, lead us to the foot of your cross where your blood had poured out for the sins of all. That we would not be the same, Lord, that we would not enter into this season hardening our heart against your ways, your spirit, your power. Bring us to our knees, Lord. That we would find you in the still small place. Lead us to your heart. That we would not harden our heart into a heart of stone, but that we would be made into a heart of flesh by your heart, Lord, which is the redemption of all of Israel. sacrifice that you have given for each and every one of us. That your gift is a gift of grace that no one can boast. free Pentecostal AG non-denominational Lord bring your body together for this season that we would walk in accordance with you at the head and your spirit as our guide Lord that we would be your people and you would be our God unite this city make us one God majestic is your name in all of the earth. Lord, today and every day we join with the elders in the throne room singing holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, Kadosh. Before we leave today, let's go ahead and let's sing that chorus one more time.
of our life, Lord. That we would lay ourselves down at the feet of your son in the sacrifice. Lord, for everything that was laid on this cross today, Lord, you've already known. But Lord, I ask humbly in your name that by the blood of Jesus that you would remove it from the lives of each and every person who laid it at the feet of you today, Lord. That you would fill that space with your peace that you've cast it as far as the east is to the west. That it's been washed white as snow by the blood of the Lamb. That the testimony of this church, that the testimony of this community is that Jesus still saves, Jesus still heals, Jesus still eradicates sin, and that through the confession of the sins and the laying it at the feet of God, that we can be healed. You are the healer, you are the provider, you are the savior, you are the shield, Lord. The Holy One of Israel, mighty are you. Do not let us be the same. Do not let us walk this life the same. May it be so, Lord, out of the mouths of babes, that we would sing, we would praise the same way Izzy does just making a joyful noise for the fact that these are gone. That these chains, these Egyptians, these slavery have no power in the name of Yeshua. Lord, we bless you, we thank you, and we praise you in this place. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. See you tomorrow morning, church.